23-hour day yesterday, and after five hours of sleep, it was time to fulfill the rights of God Almighty and get up for the morning prayer. Mujib and I both tried to go to sleep after the morning prayers, but thanks to two kids and the usual school runs in the morning, my body was like, Nah, you've been on a schedule for a few years, my friend. Thou shalt not go back to sleep. So after 30 minutes of turning from one side to the other, we admitted defeat and got up. I pulled away the curtains and a blue sky welcomed us. Luckily, we had a small balcony and when I opened the door, I expected a somewhat chilly wind, but instead, it was a perfect temperature with a light breeze. Welcome to day two of my trip to the Web Summit held in the beautiful city of Lisbon for the seventh consecutive time. Today is the 14th of November 2023 and officially the first day of the summit which is described by the Atlantic as the place where the future goes to be born. Around 20 minutes later, Brother Zavad also woke up and we went down for breakfast. Let me quickly run through the buffet just for today, as the next two mornings this exercise was repeated in the same manner with pretty much the same selection. Alright, so it's time for breakfast. Five hours of sleep. And for some reason, I'm, I'm quite relaxed. I don't know how you guys feel. But anyways, um, so let's just quickly run through the breakfast buffet here. Um, so we got eggs, two kinds, scrambled as well as fried eggs. What's on that side? Mm, no, that's sausages. No vegan sausages. No, nothing. No hash browns either, no beans. Well, I guess we're not having English breakfast today. Um, this side you have all the cereals, you got the different kind of breads, juice, um, yogurt, fruit, usual. And of course, the little Portuguese tarts. I don't even know what... What's the proper name for these? I don't even know. Um, yeah. And what else do we have? Oh, we got some mushrooms. They look nice. And why is there so many people down here so early? Anyway, so you grab your stuff and um, you have a wonderful view onto the Benfica Stadium. Benfica Lissabon football team. And uh, let's enjoy breakfast. I forgot the coffee part, but I think that's kind of understood. According to Majib, the coffee was pretty good. Myself, I'm not a coffee drinker. The only coffee I drink is a flat white from the Nescafe machine in our Voice of Islam office, but to mention that to coffee lovers is almost an insult, so let's not get into that debate. 
After breakfast, we all got ready, had a quick debrief in the room, and off we went to the metro. During the days leading up to the summit, we all did our own independent research, looked up all talks and speakers, and then created our own tailor-made schedule through the app, which was brilliant. Because it was the first day and we were still massively tired from the journey, new beds, new city, new environment, etc., we missed the first session of the day, which was about breakout startups. However, we made it just in time to the opening remarks of Web Summit's CEO, Catherine Marr. Good morning. Welcome back to Web Summit. Welcome to day one. I hope that you all were able to enjoy opening night and take part in the first night of uh, Night Summit. It's going to be the first of three events this week, and I hope that you're able to enjoy and continue to meet people and have a wonderful time. Uh, we're about to have 70,000 people, as you heard, from all over the world um, attending over the course of the next few days, the largest number of startups to exhibit in the history of Web Summit, and an incredible start to what's going to be a very memorable week. Uh, even though I've been web, the CEO of Web Summit for only a few weeks, I know what it's like to prepare to stand on this stage. Uh, I, left, I led the Wikimedia Foundation during my time there. We did a lot to bring information to the world, and now I'm excited to be able to do the same here at Web Summit. So before we begin, we're going to have an incredible lineup today. I'd like you all to take a moment to think about what it means uh, to think about the world around us and the role of information in it and what it means in this charge time. I'd like you to think about the hope that technology brings to making the world better and how you are a part of that. And I want you to consider the role that we all have to play in the development of technology and how we use that to make the world a safer and better place. Um, I know how hard it is to stand on this stage as a speaker, and I know the work that everyone puts in to get here, not just professionally in order to have the ideas and the accomplishments, but also just the very real work it takes to be able to take the deep breath to walk out and stand in front of you all. So I hope that you'll give your support to the speakers today and make them feel tremendously welcome. So, I'm very excited to now introduce the incredible lineup alongside my hosts, Casey Lau from Hong Kong, Laura Vicente from Brazil, and Brigitte Trong from Canada, who hopefully you've seen at all of our events in the past. Over the next few days, you'll see that this is where the future comes to be born. Today on day one, we're excited to introduce speakers like Albert Wegner from Union Square Ventures, Ko Zhang from Alibaba, and Meredith Whitaker from Signal. Without any further ado, we're going to get right to it. The next talk is all about artificial intelligence. As it gathers pace, so too do attempts at regulation. Every country is working towards its own set of rules, as I'm sure you're aware, and that competition about those rules, who is going to regulate the future of AI, what that means for power and dominance, not just in the industry, but in foreign policy, uh, is an incredibly contested conversation. The risks associated with AI, such as misinformation, job loss, bias encoded into the system, are all essential drivers towards this conversation about regulation. How do we both have AI and enjoy democracy? How do we have AI and enjoy freedom of expression, as I talked about last night? How do we have AI and allow for ourselves to have meaningful work? These are important questions. 
So to discuss AI and how it can or should be regulated, the impact it may have on the tech industry, I want you all to please welcome to the stage MIT research scientist, Andrew McAfee. You're in for a great conversation. Thank you so much. After Catherine, Andrew McAfee, principal research scientist at MIT and co-director of MIT's initiative on the digital economy took to the stage and spoke about how we regulate AI, something that Jimmy Wells, the founder of Wikipedia, briefly alluded to the night before. Now, Andrew started off by asking people in the crowd about the Duolingo app and the Duolingo English test and how many of them had used it. If you haven't heard of Duolingo, you're not alone. I hadn't either up to that point. So let me quickly explain what it is. According to their website, it's the best way to learn a language online with bite-sized lessons based on science. When you visit the website for the first time, you can choose from 30-plus languages, which includes Havilarian and Klingon. When I checked out the website, Spanish was the most popular one at number one with 40.2 million learners, followed by French and Japanese. And just in case if you're wondering, Havilarian had 848,000 and Klingon 347,000 learners. Anyways... There's a preliminary assessment of how much of the language you know, why you want to learn, and also how much you want to learn in a day, all depending on your schedule and how much effort you want to put in. I thought it was great. And I look at the Duolingo English test and I say, this is fantastic. We need more of this. We need more kinds of innovation in important areas like education. And in particular... I'm kind of fond of the fact that the team at Duolingo didn't have to ask permission of anybody to start experimenting, to put a beta test out there, to start gathering information, refining what they were doing, and getting a product ready for market. That feels to me like the right way to go about the business of innovating. And so I hang the label permissionless on front of that. I'm in one camp. There's another camp who looks at things like the Duolingo English test and says, actually, we don't like that. We don't think there's enough upstream governance on products, on innovations like the English test, and we need to put more of those upstream mechanisms in place. We're all sitting in a region that I think is part of team upstream governance, and we see that because the EU's proposed AI Act is pretty clear that more governance is needed and in what kind of areas we need more governance. So the AI Act has different tiers of of application for AI, and the one where they start to get concerned and where they start to want to have more governance is in high-risk areas. And it turns out that if your system is used for educational purposes or to admit somebody into an educational institution, it's classified as a high-risk system. And when it's a high-risk system, there are a number of requirements that must be satisfied before the technology can be put on the market. So he went on to explain both sides and where they're coming from. On one hand... People like him and other travelers look at upstream governance and say, more of that, i.e. more of upstream governance, means less innovation. Whereas if you look at the other side, they say that more permissionless innovation means more harm. And that clearly means both systems are incompatible. 
He then went on to give three reasons why he is on team permissionless innovation, but I won't go into the details of that. However, one of the last points that he mentioned was a statement on AI risk, which said that mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority, alongside other societal-scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. There are also people who believe that ChatGPT could make bioterrorism horrifyingly easy, apparently. Sounds scary, doesn't it? Well, it is. But long story short, there's a bunch of other things that you can do and buy if you work in biotech, for example, without any permission that would enable you to do the same. And here's how he closed his speech, by taking us back to the horrible and very uncertain time of COVID. And the track record of vaccines would lead us to some real pessimism because on average, up to that point, it took somewhere between five and 10 years to develop, test, and get a vaccine out there to market. And so we, in the early part of 2020, a lot of us were looking around thinking this is bad and it might stay bad for a very long time. And a huge part of the reason, that's not what happened, a huge part of the reason that it didn't stay bad for a very long time is due to this fantastic person who is a Nobel laureate as of this year. And it turns out that Dr. Katikariko was working on the fringes of medicine, of biotechnology, of healthcare. She had a series of jobs kind of hanging on on the fringes of different institutions, working with different colleagues, but she was obsessively focused on this one tool, this one technology called mRNA, and tried to use it for a bunch of different things. And to be clear, the early results were discouraging, in particular when the team was trying to use mRNA to deliver a, a, a drug to different animals in the lab, there was a very strong inflammation response and it looked like this technology actually was not safe, was not a safe pathway for delivering a drug. We should all be extremely grateful that Dr. Carrico was able to continue her work, that she was as tenacious as she was, that she was close enough to the action in biotechnology, that she found ways to continue her work, find colleagues to work with, find enough people who believed in her, and that we didn't have more upstream governance on this very distributed, decentralized process of trying to come up with good ideas when they matter a lot. The center stage talks continued, but we decided to split up and go after our own personal schedules and meet up at lunchtime to share what we had learned. Until lunch, which was around one and a half hours away, I had two talks on my list. The first one looked at what role the media will be playing in covering the 2024 U.S. presidential elections and how they will be relaying the results. Remember? Misinformation, deep fakes at the last election? And the second one was about inclusive journalism and why diversity is key to getting the news right and how we can create editorial offices that actually reflect the societies we live in and not serve as the outlet of one group alone. And let me start with the second one first, and this will be a short one, I promise. So due to the fact that the main guest, Cecilia Oliveira, who's the co-founder at The Intercept, was from Brazil, she gave examples based on her experience and work in Brazil. And she started off with some stats that 84% of people that work in journalism in Brazil are white. 
Now that in itself is nothing bad and there's nothing wrong with that. However, these 84% are double the number of the actual white population of Brazil. The number of non-white editors is close to none. So when you have a newsroom filled with a certain group of people who all live in a certain part of the city or country, then that is something which will be reflected in their reporting. They will all have the same view, the same experience, the same opinion. You need diversity in the newsroom to really reflect what society is all about, to give you the true picture of the issues and problems people face. I couldn't agree more. Now, coming on to the first talk, which was about the role of the media in covering the 2024 U.S. presidential elections. The speakers for this one were Julie Pace, executive director at the Associated Press, and Julia Seeger, a journalist and presenter at France 24. Now, the reason why AP is so important in this discussion is that they not only cover the election like any other news outlet, but they also have been counting the votes and declaring the winner for the past 170 years, something I didn't know myself. So Julie spoke about the rising challenges and threats they have been facing in covering and counting the votes, whether that be from misinformation, cyber threats, or simply distrust in the information they're putting out. Let me give you an example. Remember Donald Trump? Well, he wasn't too happy about the results of that election in 2020. I remember that clearly because we covered that on Voice of Islam extensively. So there was talk about voter fraud, conspiracies about the voting machines that turned votes cast for him to the other candidates, and a few more issues. Now all of that was debunked and proven not to be true. However, according to a poll conducted by the AP's NORC Center for Public Affairs, it led to the fact that 57% of Democrats started to believe that Joe Biden was not legitimately elected as president. What followed on from that, we all saw on TV and social media, culminating in the storming of the Capitol by a mob of pro-Trump supporters in January 2021, just two months after his defeat. So, one aspect that AP is focusing on a year ahead of the elections is ensuring their systems are safe and secure, which in itself is a huge undertaking. The second aspect Julie spoke about was explanatory journalism. What that means is that it is not sufficient anymore that AP puts out a statement and says such and such candidate is the winner. Congratulations. The end. Now they have to explain in detail that this is the winner and these are the reasons why they called the race for him or her. If you have ever observed US presidential elections, you will know it's not something that is decided within you know, a few hours or a day even. It can take many days to finally come to a conclusion as to who the winner is. So, how do you fill that time with credible, explanatory information for people? Because if that doesn't happen, then we could possibly see what we saw in 2020 all over again. A void filled with misinformation, pundits and conspiracy theorists filling the minds of people with unfiltered, unreliable news. As mentioned earlier, the main focal point of this year's web summit was AI. So Julie was asked about it as well and how AP will ensure that the information they're putting out there will be accurate and also verified. 
She mentioned that they have a rigid system of checks and balances. They're relying on information coming from state feeds as well as deploying 5,000 people around the country to work with county local officials. And their job is to check that the information they're getting is accurate and double and triple checked. As for AI, well, there is no denying that this technology is here to stay. And for that, they will have to look into working with external partners, maybe, or people from the industry who know more about this technology that can provide them the tools to determine whether a picture, a report, or a video is real or not. The last point I want to mention about this talk is that according to Julie, the AP is a fact-based, non-partisan news organization that wants to be viewed as credible by the people across the political spectrum, inside as well as outside the US, unlike you know, other news organizations that clearly have a bias and a political agenda. Now, having said that, with the rise of social media in the past few years, this will be a clear challenge. Due to the sheer number of people relying on social media for all their news, as well as the speed at which information or misinformation in cases like that is spread, the inability of major organizations to verify accounts and posts, if they are trustworthy, uh, can they be verified or not, makes it a lot harder for AP with their 177-year history, as well as other news outlets, of being fact-based organizations that aim to provide people accurate information. During our shows on The Voice of Islam, we have spoken numerous times to journalists and political commentators and experts about this very issue. And their answer has always been the same. Use common sense, use reliable sources, and do your own in-depth research, letting go of all biases and vested interests. Well, I guess that's easier said than done. Pastel de nata and pastel de belém. The pastel de belém is at Belém. There's a huge venue near the Mosteiro dos Jerónimos. And the pastel de nata, the traditional one, yeah. So is it is it one of the national desserts, dishes? Yeah, but there's more importance uh, here in Lisbon. For example, I'm not from Lisbon and we don't eat so much pastel de nata. Pastéis de nata is a Portuguese custard tart we saw everywhere we went. Every bakery, every shop offered their own version of it. The main features, however, were all the same. A flaky, buttery shell filled with a rich, creamy custard and a light brownish top bit due to the slight burn or caramelization adding a delightful contrast in texture and flavor. All in a small muffin foil tray. Our friend from another media outlet spoke about the different shops that sold the best pastiche de nata in Lisbon. So naturally, we had to go check it out. And once you get there, the shop window offers you a feast for the eyes. Freshly made, neatly placed and organized, it attracted the beholder. And one was left with no choice but to try it. Commonly enjoyed with a dusting of powdered sugar and cinnamon, they have become a symbol of Portuguese pastry making. And, of course, they're a must-try for anyone exploring Portuguese cuisine. So for someone first time here, what would you recommend cuisine, like dish? What, where, what would you... I love bacalhau, but... What's that? Uh, it's a codfish. Codfish. Yeah. I, I really like... 
yesterday we have uh, cockfish mm. with red uh, kind of red mesh and spinach. I really love that one. My, uh, oh, she doesn't love. She doesn't like cockfish. I wasn't forgetting that. But yeah. Uh, or you love or you hate. No, you yeah. don't. No, the one that we had yesterday was pretty good. Yeah. Like, uh, I liked it. For example... But it was cold, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Portuguese cuisine is famous for its diverse and flavorful dishes, with a strong emphasis on fresh, high-quality ingredients. Its extensive coastline influences the cuisine significantly, making seafood a main item on the menu. Bacalhau, or salted codfish, which was mentioned by our colleague, is a national dish and prepared in numerous ways. It holds a special place in Portuguese cuisine and culture. The tradition of preserving codfish with salt dates back to the 14th century, when Portuguese sailors started exploring distant waters. The cod would be salted and dried to ensure it remained edible during long sea voyages. There's a popular saying in Portugal that there are 365 ways to cook bacalhau, one for each day of the year. While I'm sure the exact number may be debated, the sentiment underlines the incredible variety of recipes using salted cod. Bacalhau can be prepared in numerous ways, from simple dishes like shredded cod with onions, potatoes and eggs, to more elaborate creations like a casserole with cod, potatoes, onions and eggs. We didn't get to try the latter, but during our stay, we had at least three different versions of codfish. And contrary to my expectations, they all actually tasted pretty amazing. After lunch, I found a quiet corner, did my ablution, offered my prayers, and off we went again to tick off the next set of talks we had scheduled. A small highlight of today for me personally was a meet and greet followed by a press conference with two legendary Brazilian footballers, Roberto Carlos and Gilberto Silva. Nicknamed El Hombre Bala, which means the bullet man, Roberto Carlos won four La Liga championships, three Champions League titles, and the FIFA World Cup in 2002 with his team, Brazil. Gilberto Silva won the English FA Cup twice with Arsenal, the Copa America, and the FIFA World Cup with Brazil, just to name a few. It's a 30 yard free kick with a 20 yard run up. Dear, dear! I don't believe it! What a goal we have just seen from Roberto Carlos! That is amazing! Well, that was what was missing in Euro 97. I still remember when Roberto Carlos took that unforgettable free kick against France in 1997 that left everyone stunned as the ball curved around the defensive wall, hitting the left post into the goal leaving Barthez, the French keeper, no chance to stop it. And like the commentators at Sky Sports put it, we didn't see one like it for many, many a year. Now both of these greats of the game had now teamed up again to create Striver, an AI-powered abuse-free online platform which was unveiled at the Web Summit. At the following press conference, they were joined by Tim Chase, CEO at Striver, and both had taken off their blazers and were rocking the Striver t-shirts. The idea behind Striver, according to Chase, is that it removes hate to make it easy for fans and players to engage with each other. 
It reminded me of the stitch function found on some other social media platforms, meaning that let's say one of them posts a video of theirs on the platform of a free kick or penalty or anything else with a tutorial or explanation on how they did it. People watching it can then in return post a response in video format to which Carlos or Silva can then feature on. Once that's done, the video will be visible for all of their followers to be seen on their feed. And of course, issues such as player abuse, social media, and his role, as well as the comparison between then and now of the game, were spoken about during the press conference. You know, uh, with innovation in sports, you know, social media especially, um, numbers of information, amounts of information, somehow the, the, the players, they became their own platform to communicate what they want, what they expect, and what they could also promote for other brands apart from the club. Different from our time that we have to wear our kids and uh, show the, the pictures on the internet and uh, on TV or whatever we, the people could see what is there. Nowadays things change, you know, what our teams change in the world. We have to adapt to it. Sometimes some people, they are not uh, fun of it, some players, honestly. Because, uh, especially in social media, they are a little bit concerned because they live out in terms of the results. If they win the game, they love them. Some people love them. If they lose the game, it's not that much. And then you have to have a balance and to be aware of what you have to do. But I honestly encourage the players to use their social media platform on a good way, on their own benefits. Instead of be afraid of using it, even though when they lose a game, use it, you know, to to give your voice. Listen, we did very well today. We don't have a good day every time. I don't wake up every day motivated to work. I don't wake up every day, you know, that oh, I'm going to do everything today. I'm going to win the game. I'm going to win everything. No. But it's normal. You know what the problem is? Uh, when you sp people see the sports people, uh, you know, um, go to the game and uh, get used to win the games, and people sometimes don't really accept that this guy is a human, that he, this guy can have a bad day, like any of us here in this room. We are all I exchanged a few words with Gilberto after the press conference and mentioned what many of my generation think and say to me, that football then was real football. It was about the game. It was about the skills, the passion for it. Don't get me wrong, football today is marvelous. Players and clubs are at a level they never have been before. But all he had to say to me with a smile on his face was, you can say that, I can't. And now, Let's get to the highlight. Throughout our journey leading up to it, I was in contact with one of the Imams of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Lisbon, Imam Fazal Ahmad Majoka. One of our aims was also to learn about the Ahmadiyya community in Portugal and maybe meet some of its members, sit down with them and listen to some of the stories of our elders and pioneer missionaries who came to this country and planted the seed of the community. As an Imam myself, I'm always interested to learn from their lives, what challenges they had to face and how they managed to overcome them and how much of that information I can apply to my life, to my job as an Imam. 
We took a three-hour break from the web summit and were picked up by Imam Fazl close to the arena. During the drive, we all introduced ourselves and what we did back home, our duties, our assignments, what we were here for. He told us about life outside the bubble of the web summit for the ordinary Portuguese citizen. The struggles of not finding work, not being able to pay rent, housing issues, school issues, and how many people from outside Europe see Portugal as a stepping stone into mainland Europe. We reached a small mission house around 40 minutes later and immediately set up our recording equipment to not waste any valuable time. Shortly after, we were joined by another imam currently serving in the same region in Lisbon, Imam Hamidullah Zafar. Coincidentally, I had met his son, Irbaz, almost eight years ago in London when I had just graduated from missionary college, and we had spent a whole month together in the same room before the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the UK. He told me that he had gotten married and was now working as a doctor in the United States of America. In the first episode of my diary, I mentioned that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community believes that the promised Messiah and Reformer, foretold by the Holy Quran and the Holy Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon him, has arrived in the person of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, who was born in the small village of Qadian, located in the Punjab in India. He was born in 1835 and established the community in 1889 after receiving divine guidance from God Almighty. All religions contain prophecies that foretell the advent of a special individual who will come as a reformer in the latter days. In Islam, as I mentioned, Muslims await a promised Messiah and Mahdi. Christians await the second coming of Jesus, peace be upon him. Buddhists are waiting for the return of Buddha. Hindus expect the return of Krishna, peace be upon them all. And so, all religions are waiting for the return of their respective founders and prophets. As Ahmadis, we do not believe in the physical return of any of these prophets, but rather a spiritual. It had to be one man, sent and guided by God to fulfill the task of uniting mankind under the religion of Islam. He was not to be sent as an independent prophet, but a subordinate of the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, a perfect follower of his, one who was not going to bring a new law, a new sharia or sacred book, because for us it is categorically clear that the Holy Quran is the last law-bearing book ever to be revealed by God Almighty, period. So this man was born in a village that was unknown to the world, and it still may be even today. Now the first question I asked Imam Fazl Ahmed was about that message and how it traveled 5,000 miles to the most western corner of Europe, all the way to Portugal. Before I get to his answers, let me briefly explain some of the terms he will be using. These are commonly used in the Urdu language or in the subcontinent, and you may not be familiar with these expressions. So when he mentions the word Molana, for example, Molana Iqbal Najm, it means Imam. Imam Iqbal Najm. Sahib is a term used to show respect in the Urdu language to someone, which actually translates to Sir. Jamaat refers to community. Juma prayers means Friday prayers. And Huzur refers to His Holiness, the current Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand, or one of the previous Caliphs 
of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Thank you very much. In Portugal, the message of Ahmadiyyat reached in 1987 when Jamaat was registered. There were three members. One of them was Maulana Abdustar Khan Sahib, who's actually serving in Guatemala as a missionary in charge. And then there was a woman who came from Brazil, Sister Amina. She was sent by the missionary Maulana Iqbal Najam Sahib, who's in UK. On behalf of Maulana Iqbal Najam Sahib, there was a, a lawyer who represented Maulana Iqbal Najam Sahib. And these three members registered the Jamaat here in Portugal. And beside them, there were some members who were from Pakistan and from Guinea-Bissau. They were the first few members of the community. In March 1987, Jamaat was registered. It was Sister Amina who made her efforts to register the Jamaat. Uh, she came all the way from Brazil to Portugal by the instructions of the fourth Khalifa, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And she was the first lady who translated the Holy Quran into Portuguese. And by the grace of Allah in Portugal, translation of our Holy Quran in Portuguese is unique in the sense that uh, it is the only Holy Quran which is available with text in Arabic and Portuguese together. And uh, many of Portuguese people, they also like. So we have a lot of people who are purchasing the Holy Quran in Portugal. And then first missionary was the Maulana Karam Ilahi Zafar Sahib, who was transferred from Spain to Portugal. He was the missionary in Spain, but later he was transferred to Portugal in 1987. And he was the first missionary in Portugal, and he was the first president of Ahmadiyya Muslim community here in Portugal. And through his efforts, the Jamaat started establishing he was able to purchase uh, a house that was uh, the mission house, a first mission of the Ahmadiyya community in Portugal. It was uh, located in a municipality called Oyrish. Hazrat Khalifatul Masih, the fourth caliph, uh, visited that house when he visited Portugal. What I remember is uh, from 3rd March 1990 to 8th March 1990. Huzur offered Juma prayer, which is the only Juma prayer offered by our caliph, the fourth caliph in Portugal. Then Jamaat started establishing. Many members came from other countries, especially when Portugal entered in European Union. Initially, we have members from Guinea-Bissau and uh, some uh, from some other African countries and from Pakistan as well. After Maulana Karam Ilahi Zafar Sahib, there was another missionary, Maulana Abdullah Nadim Sahib, who is recently serving in the United States of America. And by the grace of Allah, after him, I was able to come here in Portugal as a third missionary in 2010. Since then, I have been serving Jamaat here in Portugal. Again. If you were wondering about some of the terms used by Imam Fazl Ahmed in his answers, let me repeat some of them he used. So Molana refers to Imam, meaning Molana Iqbal Najam, refers to Imam Iqbal Najam. 
When he says sahib, this is a term used to show respect in the Urdu language and translates to sir. Jamaat refers to community. Juma prayer refers to Friday prayer. And huzur usually refers to His Holiness, if we are speaking in the current terms, His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the current Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, or it can also refer to one of the previous Caliphs of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Let's move on. Now it's all good and fine if you have the knowledge about your faith and any information you need to preach to others. But if you don't have the tool of language to communicate to the people, then all that knowledge is of no use. So I asked him about his journey and how he learned the language which is essential for our work as imams and missionaries in order to preach the message of Islam. Yeah, it was very difficult, though I have uh, some idea uh, because I stayed for some time for one year in Guinea-Bissau. Their official language of Guinea-Bissau is also Portuguese, but uh, by then I did not learn Portuguese because the national language of Guinea-Bissau was Creole, which was broken Portuguese. So initially it was very difficult. So uh, with the permission of uh, Huzur, I did some initial courses and some courses from the university. And today, by the grace of Allah, we deliver speeches, sermons in Portuguese. During the next few minutes, we spoke about the belief and support of God Almighty. Unlike businesses and companies, we don't rely on our investors or prophets, but our prayers and our connection with God Almighty and our caliph of the time, currently His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, may Allah strengthen his hand. So I asked him about this and if these are the sources that give him the strength and the inspiration to carry on with his work as an imam here in Lisbon. As we are devoted missionaries, and when I came, the only purpose of my coming was to spread the message of uh, Islam, Ahmadiyyat. So with that uh, sense and dedication, we have started learning Portuguese and started working uh, with the members of the Jamaat. Initially, we had a lot of problems when we used to have uh, our members from Guinea-Bissau. There were no means of communication between Pakistanis Ahmadis and African Ahmadis. African Ahmadis, they used to speak uh, broken Portuguese. But uh, our Ahmadis, their level of uh, understanding of the language was not uh, to that extent that they communicate and speak uh, religious language. So with that spirit of uh, devotion, dedication, we started and and Alhamdulillah, with the prayers of Huzur, with the guidance of Huzur and Marcus, we are trying to spread the message of Islam, translating uh, some books and pamphlets, basic beliefs of uh, our community, and then we uh, distribute to Portuguese people. My last question to him was about his interaction with local people. Our experience with the Portuguese thus far had been very positive. I instantly felt at ease when we landed in Lisbon. The friendliness, safety and overall positive vibes I experienced made me fall in love with this country right away. Anywhere we went, people went out of their way to help us, even if they didn't speak English. But then again, for us, it had been only two days. So I was interested in how his experience had been after more than 10 years of living in this country. My experience is that Portuguese people, they are very loving, very social, very friendly and very peaceful people. I have spent more than 13 years, but I have not experienced not a single day that uh, they have discrimination or this kind of uh, racism, uh, never. 
they are very social people very friendly and uh, when we approach to them they also answer respond and listen to our opinion when we distribute pamphlets sometimes we will receive uh, emails and their positive response and on few occasions we receive the negative uh, response especially when some events happen in europe like terrorism then we receive uh, negative uh, comments from people but uh, mostly they are very positive people they respond positively and some of uh, people even demand from us some books and translation of the holy quran and to some we have offered the holy quran and that every month people been buying holy quran from the community so mostly these people are very nice and they are religious people especially the elderly people they are religious and very friendly compared to the youth the old people they are very very friendly and very religious people though some youth also they show interest in community in jamaat and in islam At the end, we asked him for a short message in Portuguese for people who want to learn more about the community and where they can find out more information. Para mais informações sobre a comunidade Ahmadiyya do Islão, temos página oficial www.alislam.pt. After the interview, Imam Fazal Ahmed invited us to his home where a lavish dinner was waiting for us prepared by his wife. And I think I speak for many when I say nothing beats a good homemade meal. So a big thank you and jazakallah may Allah bless you to him and his family for the wonderful hospitality they showed us. After dinner, we made our way downstairs to the mosque for the evening prayers. And I'll tell you truly, the joy and relief you get praying in the proper environment is priceless. After the prayers, we met some local members of the community, took a few pictures with the congregation and made our way to the car. And on our journey home, I thought about something I have told my congregation back home many times, especially the youth. The brotherhood you find within Islam and for us within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is something so unique and unmatched. I have been blessed that Allah enabled me to travel to many different parts of this beautiful world of his. And I always try to meet the local community anywhere I go and I can swear on oath that I have always been welcomed with open arms. Be it America, Canada, Europe, Asia, Africa, you name it. For me, this is due to the blessings of having unity, one leadership, one system that we all belong to and follow. And for us, that system is held together through our system of caliphate, spiritual leadership, a spiritual leader that binds us, that creates the love in our hearts by reminding us of our duties to each other as brothers and sisters. We had never met Imam Fazl or his son Zaki or Imam Hamidullah. But as soon as he came to pick us up and we shook hands and hugged each other, it was as if we had known him for years. When he spoke about his challenges, I felt it. When he spoke about his love for his holiness, 
I connected. And when I prayed in that mosque, I felt that I belonged. We said our goodbyes and both imams invited us all to come back to Lisbon with our family and next time with more time for sightseeing and exploring the country. Alhamdulillah. All praise belongs to Allah. That, my friends, was Tuesday, the 14th of November, 2023. Our day at the Web Summit in Lisbon. Step count. 17,718.